Who let the dogs out? Alright everybody, welcome to Polishing Turds. My name is Nick. And I'm Cal. And this is the show where we take a deep dive into some of the worst music of recent memory. How are you feeling, Cal? How are you, are you excited for this? I'm amped up. This is episode one. You are on the ground floor of our podcast. If you're listening to this, it's probably just because you're my friend and I kind of badgered you into it. But thank you for that. Thank you for at least downloading this and uh, pretending to give a shit. Yep. I have to confess, I'm not... I'm not actually that amped up, but you're supposed to say that stuff at the start no, we're, of the first episode. We're of the actually podcast. super depressed. Uh, you know, we're kind of curmudgeonly assholes who hate everything, um, but we, we try to to sound like we we're having fun. Well, it's funny because any media you listen to, people are all jazzed up and almost hyperactive. If you're on YouTube, <laughs> you know. and you know, we're yo 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 yo, yeah, smash that like, smash, smash that subscribe, subscribe. turn on post notifications, and, and we're just you know, we're getting old. I want to vibe like we're sitting here smoking cigarettes with berets on, <laughs> yeah. talking yeah. real nice, chill. Yeah, like You think Junkanoo's the best album? I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So seriously, what's this show all about? Who are we and why did we put the word turds in the title of our show? I, I thought we might just take a moment to introduce ourselves. So my name is Nick Vitale. I'm a barista, screenwriter, and occasional blogger. And I can't actually play any musical instruments, but music is a big part of my life, and I love talking about it. I'm Cal. I'm absolutely obsessed with music. I figured it was about time uh, we subjected people to us talking about it. And I was um, raised by a pack of wolves in the North Woods, <laughs> and I slowly learned to speak English of a, over a painstaking process, and now I'm here. They they were pretty competent wolves, I gotta say, because between the two of us, Cal has a big boy job. He's an engineer, so good, for good now, on. for for now, depending and, who listens to this and what we say. Yeah, so just <laughs> don't don't tell any anybody about what we say. So basically, this is a show about bad music, and obviously the term "bad" is subjective, but I think it's safe to say that most of the time we'll be talking about artists and songs that make you feel a bit cringy. Sometimes it's going to be stuff that we can all remember, but sometimes it'll be stuff that you've never heard of, but we think you should have heard of because it's pretty damn funny. But we want to do more than just make fun of shitty songs. We want to really explore the context behind them. Each episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into some of the most infamous artists of recent memory. We'll cover aspects of their career that most people ignore, get a sense of their internal philosophy, and try to understand just what motivated them to make those earworms in the first place. If you're anything like us, when you hear a garbage song in a trailer for some garbage movie, if there's a small part of you that wonders why that movie exists and who wrote that song in their fucking trailer, <laughs> and then you go see that movie and feel compelled to write a long essay about it, <laughs> yeah. then this is probably the show for you. Hell yeah. No cultural artifact exists in a vacuum. Like Every piece of art, like whether it's the Mona Lisa or Ice Ice Baby, it tells us something about the society that produced it. Artists operate in a unique cultural, political, and economic environment. The, you know, the more you understand the environment, the more you understand the art, and we just want to shed as much light on these things as possible. In short, we believe that behind every bad song, there's a good story. 
Today we'll be talking about the Baja Men, the Caribbean band behind the infamous 2000 hit, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who let the dogs out? What do you remember about this song? You know, I was going to go into this just dumping all over it. <laughs> and I, I I thought back to my childhood and I realized I liked this fucking song. Oh, yeah. It's like all those 90s fads were. It, it was like Pokemon cards or Tamagotchis. It showed up. It was a huge part of everyone's life for a little while. And then it disappeared as fast as it came. I know. And it's not like uh, like Smash Mouth's All-Star where like you can still hear it in bars and people still laugh about it. You like, were still making memes. Like people like seemed like they actively wanted to forget who let the dogs <laughs> out. Like it was like it was like an atrocity that like It's like when you black out at a party. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was the, that wasn't me. Yeah, but but like you said, it was huge. It was absolutely everywhere. Let's face it, if you were alive and conscious during the year 2000, you undoubtedly remember Who Let the Dogs Out. The catchy dance pop hit was in every commercial, every morning show, every shopping mall, and especially every sporting event. It was more than a song. Who Let the Dogs Out was a phenomenon. It transcended lines of age, class, color, and creed. But within a few months, the song faded just as quickly as it had arisen, and the band never came close to matching its success. Indeed, for most people, the Baja Men's career begins and ends with that goofy novelty song that was popular around the same time you were getting AOL CD-ROMs in the mail. But who are the Baja Men, really? Are they just three muscular Caribbean guys dancing on a beach? Or is there more to the story? What if I told you that Baja Men are a multi-generational band, that their existence dates back to the late 70s, and they're still making music today? What if I told you the authorship of Who Let the Dogs Out is a subject of intense dispute and has spawned multiple lawsuits? What if I told you the song itself is rooted in female sexual politics? Well, I'd say you're full of beans. <laughs> <laughs> this this whole thing makes Morpheus's pitch about the Matrix seem plausible, Nick. I told Nick. you. We're going to explore all of this and more as we take a long walk down the hot, crowded beach that is the Bahamans' career. Are you ready, Cal? Born ready. Let's polish this turd. It'd be funny to go back and say that together, Captain Planet style. (laughs) (laughs) So, the Baja men are from the Bahamas, hence the name, and their music is essentially a synthesis of modern funk, dance, and hip-hop with traditional Caribbean forms of music, particularly the style known as Junkanoo. Before we really get into the history of Junkanoo, let's throw out a little disclaimer. Cal and I are two white guys from Wisconsin. Our knowledge of Caribbean culture and traditions is next to nothing, and pretty much everything you're about to hear is the result of a few weeks of intense but ultimately inadequate research. When I go to the beach and I lay down in the sand, I camouflage. <laughs> we're, we're white, white. 
We're we're like fucking paper white. It's 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 sad. If you want to learn more about the rich musical history of this region, I highly encourage you to do so. But we're not experts in this field. You shouldn't be turning to us, and we're probably gonna fuck some things up along the way. We'll do our best. That said, let's talk about Junkanoo. Junkanoo music is the national sound of the Bahamas, and it's associated with the Junkanoo celebration that takes place every year on uh, December 26th and January 1st, so Boxing Day and New Year's Day, respectively. And basically, it's a gigantic street parade with music, dance, and incredibly elaborate floats and costumes. Like, seriously, you should uh, just go on Google and check out the costumes and the floats that these people have. They spend all year on them. They're just multicolored incredibly intricate and all made out of like like very basic materials but it looks just absolutely stunning yeah i didn't actually believe you when you were pitching me this so i did (laughs) google it it is stunning it's amazing check it out it's not a bunch of dudes in dressing up as giant dongs on state street (laughs) it's it's really cool it's it's an amazing tradition um it's like basically it's like mardi gras on steroids although even that doesn't do it justice The origins of the festival date back to slavery times when enslaved Africans would celebrate the few days off they were granted around Christmas. Over time, this evolved into an elaborate, organized parade with costumes, music, and official prizes. The music of Junkanoo is a polyrhythmic percussive style that involves goatskin drums, cowbells, whistles, and sometimes horns. Here's just a brief sample of what we're talking about. Like, this is just some shit I pulled off of YouTube. I definitely picture when I hear this, people going down the street doing a dance I would look completely fucking stupid doing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a terrible dancer, even by white dude standards. But wouldn't you love to be there? Like, wouldn't you love to like, sit in the in the rafters and watch these people in their costumes dancing down the street to that oh, music? Oh, hell yeah. Especially if you're like fucking drunk off your ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get a couple rums in you and just sit up and watch. No, Junkanoo in Nassau is, I, I didn't even know it existed until we started researching the Bahamian, but now it's on my bucket list. Junkanoo isn't the only type of music that's native to the Caribbean. The region is also home to diverse original styles such as soca, calypso, rake and scrape, and reggae. Way too much to talk about on this show, but suffice to say that the dense percussive rhythms that you hear in the Junkanoo parade, they would have influenced a lot of Bahamian musicians, and a lot of these musicians would mix their native sound with the funk, soul, jazz, and pop music coming from the U.S. One of these musicians was the influential native Bahamian singer, Ronnie Butler. As I was walking down the street one day, I met a pretty lady, she was going my way. I said, lady, would you walk along with me? I'll show you sights of interest, this is my country Like the water tower and the queen staircase And maybe later we could go to my place She was looking pretty and smiling with me And I think my line is beguiling She, oh, she was looking pretty and smiling with me And I think my line is beguiling 
You know, Nick, I bet that guy got laid a lot. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. No matter what he looked like, you could sing like that. That Mr. guy, Mr. Steal Your Wife. I I also I liked the lyric where he's in, I'm sh- I'm going to show you the sights of my country, and then he says, like the water tower, <laughs> not the pristine <laughs> beaches, not the amazing reefs. Uh, let's let's walk I'm up sure, to that tower. I'm sure there like, I'm sure there must be a context to that. I'm I'm sure it's like a it historic water tower. Yeah, it must like, be majestic. <laughs> just I'm going to show you the water tower is like Plainfield, Wisconsin, like tourism. We, we don't got much. <laughs> There's a water tower up by the river. <laughs> <laughs> So, Roddy Butler actually passed away in 2017, you know, rest in peace, but he was known as the godfather of Bahamian music. If you were a tourist visiting Nassau in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you could easily have caught him in a prestigious hotel or nightclub. But if you were an aspiring native musician from that era, you definitely looked up to him. And that brings us to the aspiring musician who founded the group that would eventually become Baja Men, Isaiah Taylor. Isaiah Taylor didn't develop an interest in music until he was 21, and still to this day doesn't read sheet music. You really don't have to, at least for modern pop and rock. No, I mean, uh, Hendrix didn't. If you know the basic chord patterns and a few scale shapes, you can get by. And I'm not talking completely out my ass. I do play guitar. Yeah. Nonetheless, Isaiah's been the bassist and the leader of the band for over 40 years and held them steady through years of turmoil, success, and lineup changes. I just gotta say, on a, a subjective note, I've uh, I've seen a lot of interviews and video of Isaiah Taylor. He just seems like a pretty chill, down-to-earth, humble dude. He really does not give off the air of a rock star at all. Yeah, he strikes me as the brains of the operation. 100%. He's not one of the guys in the fisheye lens in the video. No, no. Like uh, That brings up a good point. Like Those three guys that you see in that video, they don't even come into the picture until the year 2000. The band started in 1977. But those guys uh, didn't come on board until you know, much, much later. Bahaman is a seven-piece band. The original vocalist was a guy named Nehemiah Heald. There's a, and there's a couple other steady members, including uh, the aforementioned Isaiah Taylor. In 1977, Isaiah Taylor formed a band called High Voltage. High Voltage! <laughs> I know. It sounds like a fucking ACDC yeah. cover band. <laughs> that was my best impression. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was good. Honestly, it's... Not the most creative of names. No, in doing research for this, I found out that ACDC released their album called High Voltage one year before this in 76. Yeah, so I, like, I'll like i give uh, Taylor a pass and assume that he didn't know about ACDC. Yeah, just it's an unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but High Voltage played as High Voltage throughout the uh, late 70s and 80s. They were playing mostly in hotels and nightclubs, but in the context of the Bahamas, those are really good gigs if you can get them. You know, they did self-release a few albums, but we uh, haven't been able to find any of those records. They're all totally independent, totally underground. We just we just don't know what they sound like. Yeah. If by some weird internet miracle you do know, or you have a record or something, I don't know, send it <laughs> our way. I'd like to hear it. We'll pay the shipping. Yes. The internet claims that the band played mainly disco and funk during this era, which makes sense considering they would have been playing to the tastes of tourists in the Bahamas. But I imagine that Taylor and company tried to incorporate at least some elements of their native sound as well. By the early 90s, Taylor decided that he wanted to take his band to the next level. He sent demos to various record labels, and eventually one of those demos was discovered by an Atlantic Records A&R man named Steve Greenberg. Steve Greenberg is going to be another major character in our story, 
He's a record producer and executive, and he's known for discovering artists. He's discovered like a lot of you know really famous people that you've heard of, such as Hanson, the Jonas Brothers, Josh Stone, and a ton more. So you're telling me that one guy inflicted all of this upon us. <laughs> yeah, I There's mean, one dude responsible for Hanson and fucking Jonas Brothers. This guy, like, has... he God gave him an ear for corny pop music that's gonna sell. <laughs> and, I mean, that's not all he's done. He's produced, like, some legit artists as well. But, like, seriously, this guy has made a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah, my inner metalhead wants to hunt him for sport. <laughs> but... I, I can appreciate that, too. If if I was able to do it, I'd be a millionaire, and clearly <laughs> didn't go that way. One thing you have to respect about Greenberg is that he was the first major music industry figure to believe in Isaiah Taylor's band, and for a long time, he was the only one. In 1991, Steve Greenberg signed High Voltage to Atlantic Records. In the process, he convinced them to change their name to Baja Men, which I gotta say... Good move, Steve. Good fucking choice. <laughs> he just he saw what we saw. He saw like he didn't want people to think that his next big act was an ACDC cover band that plays bar mitzvahs in Appleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> and that, admittedly, that is what it sounds like. Yeah, it's like it's not they 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 couldn't even get like back in black yeah. as the title of their band. Like they, <laughs> or high, highway to hell was already taken. Like we gotta go down the list to high voltage. And here's our reggae version, Highway to Heck. <laughs> in 1992, Bahamen released their debut album titled simply Junkanoo. As the name implies, the band sought to honor and represent their Bahamian roots. Let's listen to the opening track, Back to the Island. So that was a song uh, actually written by the aforementioned Ronnie Butler. You know, that makes sense to me, and I'll tell you why. That's actually my favorite <laughs> Bahamian song. It's good. Right out the gate. First song, first album. To me, well, we've already <laughs> peaked. <laughs> I it, I like it. It's I wouldn't say it's my favorite Bahamian song, but um, you really get a nice distillation of their early sound. Like, you got that funky bass groove. You know, it's layered on top of that driving percussion that just keeps going and going. Then you just throw in some kind of guitars for accent. It's just a very clean, fun, relaxing, like you feel like you're on the beach. Now, again, given where we live, you know, this isn't something I'd throw on in my car, but... No, well, we are recording this 
in Wisconsin in the middle of winter. It's like 10 fucking degrees outside right now. <laughs> yeah. So like it's it's really hard to truly immerse yourself in that environment for us right now, but when I was doing my research for all these records, I was listening to these at work. Yeah. And it just it just didn't vibe with my office. Yeah. It is kind of hard to listen to a whole CD of Bahamian songs because like as like fun and upbeat as they are, like they're pretty much all dance songs. They're designed to like kind of get you up and moving. And, you know, you just, you hear that one after another. If you were, if you were like at a live show, like it would totally make yeah. sense and you would be dancing and there'd probably be attractive people of both sexes around. Yeah. It would be a fucking fun. No, again, time. if we were in Nassau and we yeah. were drinking at the bar and these guys come out and start to set with this, I wouldn't yeah. be upset. No, we'd, they'd be, we'd be grooving. Let's listen to one more. Yeah, which no, one is, do you want? Yeah, Nick? this is going to be my favorite. This is a song called "Mama Lelele." Dude, if more pop music had bass lines like that, oh fuck, goddamn, I would listen to a lot more pop music. <laughs> oh yeah, God, like Isaiah can fucking bring it, can yep. God, which is a shame given where we're going. <laughs> I don't want to spoil too much. We'll get there. I like that. That should have been the song that was blasted at sports stadiums. Yeah. <laughs> That's good shit. I, I like everything about that song. I don't know about you, Cal, but I consider Junkanoo to be the best Bahamian album. Yeah, easily. If you want to impress your hipster friends with your deep music <laughs> knowledge, posit to them that the first Bahamian album like, isn't oh. actually that bad. It's like, oh, you like Who Let the Dogs Out? And have you heard their original <laughs> or their early stuff? <laughs> like, it's actually pretty good. I, I mean, I hate to be that guy. I hate to be like, you know, like, oh, it was never better than the first disc. Because like, that's that's not always true of bands. In fact, it usually isn't true of bands. But I just feel it's true about this band and this album. And I think like over time, we're going to see why it is true is because they kind of would dilute it a little bit more and more with each release. So this album was a success in the Caribbean, but it failed to make a big splash in the United States or really any major market. And that's not a big surprise. Like just consider the state of American music in 1992. You have grunge, you know, Nirvana and Soundgarden on one side, and you have fucking NWA on the other. Like, where where does this shit yeah. fit in? <laughs> yeah, it had no hope. You really got to hand it to Steve Greenberg. It's it's a testament to his faith in the band that he somehow believed these guys would eventually hit it big. I wanted to do a thought experiment with you, Nick. Go for it. Do we see what Steve Greenberg saw? Because, <laughs> you know, for me, if I saw this band even live, yeah. it would just be another Caribbean bar band to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say. It's it's definitely it doesn't really sound like anything else that's out there in the world of pop music at that time and it, it's fun but it do, it doesn't seem like an obvious pop hit. 
No, especially like you said, with like the scene going on, you know, rap kicking off. Yeah. Is he is he hoping the Beastie Boys will sample this at some point? I don't understand. What- <laughs> I know, like I really don't I don't know what he was going for or if it was just like uh maybe he thought it was just like some kind of like low cap investment that there's a slim chance it might hit it big. That but, I could see. I bet you're right. It was. It's a low yeah. risk, high reward type thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll throw these guys a few grand and just like, see maybe, what happens. Maybe people get tired of this grunge shit and they just want to relax down by the beach. Yeah, that's a good answer. In 1994, Bahaman followed up Junkanoo with their second album, Calic, named after the sound that the Caribbean cowbell makes. This record essentially offers more of the same, but they start to add additional producers and songwriters, and the sound starts to shift towards more mainstream pop and rock influences. Consider this song, which was actually written by Lenny Kravitz, of all people. Nick, I gotta say, there's something about Lenny Kravitz. He looks like he smells bad. <laughs> he, he looks like he smells bad. Yeah, I don't want to derail this too bad, but he looks like an all-natural deodorant type guy to me. I don't know. There's... No, you know, like I've never thought about him that way, but I, I kind of, I kind of see it. Like he's, he's just he, he looks like he practices this like just woke up at 11 a.m. look. Yeah, you know? like. So I think the production is a little bit better on Calic, but you know, again, some of the songs tend to drag on a bit too long. There just aren't enough good hooks on this album. Like Junkanoo has a few songs that have really good hooks. This one, really not so much. Yeah, I think it's already a little more boring. I get why Lenny came in and chopped some of the Junkanoo stuff. Yeah. But again, to me, you're already then making them more generic, and that's not what they needed. No. So this album wasn't uh, a big hit either, but according to Wikipedia, like one of the songs actually charted in Canada and New Zealand. So making some headway. Yeah. After this album, Steve Greenberg moved from Atlantic to Polygram Records and the band moved with him. Their first album on Polygram was 1997's I Like What I Like. Generally speaking, this is also kind of an unremarkable record. But I really like this track. This is a actually a mashup of two classic songs by Casey and the Sunshine Band. You'll definitely recognize them.
I don't know. I really, I really like this song. I, I think it's one of my favorite Bahamut tracks. Yeah, it's fitting for them that <laughs> two covers mashed up would be one of their best ones. Yeah, like a lot of the Bahamut songs are covers, or their songs. Sometimes they're songs that Steve Greenberg wrote for them. Songwriting isn't really their strength. It's the performance, and uh, I think really they're they're a live band. Yeah, so it's hard to translate that to their albums, but. This song in particular, doing the Casey and the Sunshine Band in this way, it just feels like like a wedding band. And I'm not knocking wedding bands. My parents were in a wedding band, but it's like a really inventive wedding band that's just like kind of feeling a little bit cocky toward the end of their set. The the whole crowd is like drunk and kind of amped up and they just kind of want to take it up to 11, you know? Sure. So they play this song. After I Like What I Like came 1998's Dung Spunk. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> we we like debated this like a lot how to pronounce that, what it could potentially mean. I really I'm convinced it's like an inside joke and they just named the album that no one no one knows. No, like I presume it's some kind of like Caribbean slang, but I, I googled it as much as I could. I just absolutely nothing. So Dung Spunk. Dung Dung Spunk. Dung Spunk Meek. <laughs> I know it sounds more German than anything else. <laughs> My favorite track on Dung Spunk by far is the opening track, Eczema's Reincarnation. But wait a sec, you ask? Who's Eczema? Well, I'll tell you, but first we're going to have to take a little detour. Eczema is a musician, playwright, and author from the Bahamas. He was born McFarlane Gregory Anthony Mackey. And <laughs> I know, that's, that's a mouthful of a McFarlane name, isn't it? McFarlane Gregory Anthony Mackey. <laughs> I know. He uh, he grew up in the Bahamas, but he moved to New York at age 17 to study architecture. He ran out of money, and he began to play folk music in local clubs to pay the rent. So this is in the mid-60s, like when the Greenwich Village folk scene was at its peak. So he's playing in the same bars as like Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary. So this is like the scene to be in if you were playing folk music during that era. Eventually, Eczema forgot about architecture and began recording his own music. His music drew from the traditions of Junkanoo, Carnival, Calypso, and traditional African music, as well as American folk. He also drew aesthetic inspiration from the West African tradition of Obia, which is a system of spiritual healing kind of similar to voodoo. He started dressing in these really crazy costumes, these Obia dresses mixed with like a cowboy hat with a feather in it. He looked absolutely wild on stage, and he sang just this incredibly powerful original music. He has an amazing voice. And the whole thing just sounds like nothing else you've ever heard. He once described his sound as, quote, All music that has ever been written and all music not yet written. It's feeling, emotion, the sound of man, the sound of day creatures, night creatures, and electrical forces. Dude, that's one of the most bold things I've ever heard. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, he could back it up. Let's hear a cut from his self-titled debut album, Eczema. Oh. 
So I have to say the change from McFarlane, Gregory, Anthony, Mackey to Eczema, the Obia Men <laughs> has got to be probably even better of a name change in high voltage <laughs> yeah. to Baha Men. No, that's uh, that's- there's no way he was booking clubs as is McFarlane, Gregory. <laughs> Come spend an evening with McFarlane, Gregory, Anthony, Mackey. <laughs> <laughs> He'll recite Watership Down from memory. <laughs> Yeah, eczema is just really fucking cool, and I'm so glad that I found an excuse to talk about him on this uh, on this show. You know how I found out about eczema, by the way? No, it was a YouTube algorithm. I was listening to like whatever the fuck I was listening to a few years ago, and it just kind of popped up. I, I will admit I was on uh, some substances that you know <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to give to just anyone. And it it really I vibed with it like the the obia spirits came to me, and that's that's how everyone should experience eczema. You need to like put on his record in the middle of the night, turn off the lights, and take some mushrooms, and just let the spirits carry you to the netherworld. Okay, so how how does this relate to Bahamut? You see, eczema passed away in 1997, and the opening track of Dung Spunk is a tribute to his legacy. Here's Eczema's reincarnation by Bahamen. Oh, look here, me? I ain't gonna yet. Why? Uh, uh, I ain't gonna yet. Uh, Eczema been dead for a little while. He's, he's the old man, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you, you, you could still feel his spirit. You hear that sound? Boy, that sound like, sound like something around here, you know. You hear that? Sound like something around here, you know. What is all right, What is all right? Yeah, so that like that is a pretty fitting tribute. Unfortunately, the rest of Dung Spunk is pretty mediocre. There is one more song off of Dung Spunk that I would like to talk about. It's actually a cover of the Beach Boys song Kokomo, and I want you to pay attention to two things about this song. First, pay attention to the beat, because 
by now it's like almost straight up club music. And also we're going to hear something that's going to become a feature of Bahaman music from here on out, a rap bridge. I think this one's the first sign of times to come with the Bahamen. Yeah, they're really just kind of trying to shoot for a more mainstream sound at this yeah. point. Let's get something that a DJ can play in a club somewhere and maybe we'll get some traction. It feels like they spent a long time trying to figure out what their exact market is. And maybe by this time they were thinking like, well, maybe, you know, maybe clubhouse music is kind of our scene. They weren't quite ready to go all the way there at this yep. point. But they definitely were kind of testing the waters. More mainstream sound aside, Dungsbank only sold 700 copies in the United States. Jesus Christ. I know. It's, it's That's insanely sad. low. <laughs> there's, there's Wisconsin polka bands putting out more than that. I know. There's like Vitamin String Quartet of Alicia Keys that's <laughs> albums that sound that sell more than that. The Kids Bop Punk Covers album sold more than oh, 700 albums. More. Kids Bop kicked the Bahamans' ass. <laughs> However, there was actually one non-Caribbean country where the Bahamen did find success during this period. Any guesses what that country was, Cal? Oh, I have one. It's the only one that makes sense. Yep. I think we both know it's Japan. Japan. <laughs> who, who the fuck else? Who, who else would randomly love the Bahamen? And they did love them. Like, seriously, uh, two of the Bahamen albums went platinum in Japan before Who Let the Dogs Out came out. Yeah, they really have their own thing going on out there. Yeah. There's, you know, there's so many bands that across all genres that just don't make it here that for whatever reason just catch on like wildfire over there. The phrase big in Japan exists for a reason. Actually, according to one article I read, the success of the Bahamen actually boosted Japanese tourism in the Bahamas. It was so much so that it forced Bahamian hotels to hire more Japanese translators. That's, that's amazing to me. Like, they were fucking, like, flying out to the Bahamas looking for the Bahamen. Yeah. We're Bahamen! We're a Bahamen! This is an album that, if you look at it on, like, Amazon, it's got, like, a star. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, like, and yet, it, it like, had a significant impact. I know, on, like, all music devotes, like, two sentences to this. Yeah. <laughs> but in the Bahamas, or for Japan and the Bahamas, this boosted the Bahamas' GDP. Yeah. So, probably because they were only doing well in Japan, the next album, 2000, was released only in Japan in 1999. This album continues the gradual slide toward mediocrity as the band starts to incorporate more elements of pop, clubhouse, and hip-hop. If the name is any indication. So, if you haven't figured it out, 2000, that's 2000, as in, it's 1999, the next year's gonna be 2000. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Ooh! 
everything in 1999 had to reference the fact that it was that, out of control. Dude, it was insane. And the funniest part is not a single one of those goddamn 2000 millennium songs or albums or anything. Do you remember any of them? No. Every single one was a waste of time. Completely. The other irony is that like I remember back then people thought that 2000 was going to hit and it was going to be like a fresh start. Everything was going to be better. <laughs> Everything was going to be futuristic. The world was going to be amazing. Like, we'd be living in this like grand like tech utopia. And here we are oh, in 2020. Oh, oh, you poor, poor 1999 bastards. You told someone 1990, like Donald Trump's going to be president. My reaction was, who? <laughs> it's like, what, the guy from the Pizza Hut commercials? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... Let's listen to a song. As much as I want to skip this, yeah, honestly, let's listen to a song off I, it. Yeah, we neither of us really like this album, but but we want to like play you a little bit of why we don't like it. So here's a, here's the title track of two zero o o. So, so Cal, does that song inspire you to be optimistic about the future? Jeez, goddamn, no. That's $2 in the bargain bin at Walmart. Yeah, that's like beneath a pile of like Vin Diesel movies. <laughs> so, surprise, surprise, this album too failed to reach the charts in Western countries. And it was around this time that the band's original vocalist, Nehemiah Heald, left the band. You know, I don't blame him even a little bit. No, I I don't. And like he gave it his all. Like he was with the band like at least since the late seventies. Like, uh, and he was he's a good vocalist. I've got nothing against ne- Nehemiah. No, yeah, his his big flaw is just he's generic. I don't think he fits this music. No, but he is. I agree. He's a good singer. So he still does music. I heard somewhere that he became a backup vocalist for Lenny Kravitz, but I don't have confirmation on that. I do know that if you go on YouTube, you can find him doing like a lot of like religious and gospel music. And actually, his voice kind of suits that. I say that seems like it fits him. It does. Like it suits him better than Bahamen does. So I, I hope he's happy. So, you know, on the note of him quitting, you know, we're, we're how many years into this story? They've had no real commercial success. It makes sense that he quit. And with most bands, I feel like this would be the end of the story. It, yeah, really. Like they'd been bouncing between major labels, they'd been doing a lot of touring, you know, and but besides Japan, they're just not hitting it big. But Isaiah Taylor in the band would not give up, and equally important, Steve Greenberg would not give up on them. Indeed, Greenberg was adamantly convinced that he could break Bahamut into the mainstream if only he could find the right song for them. By 1998, he believed he had. 
charge of this one. Are you wrong, things? <laughs> I leaving you in charge. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Party was empty, party was pumping. Hey, are you B.I.O.? And everybody having a ball. Yeah, money, B.I.O. Until the man is starting him calling. When you first played me this, <laughs> it felt like everything I knew was a lie. Sorry, we we just ruined your childhood, everybody. <laughs> Who we, had the dogs on as a cover? Yeah, we. That is the man behind the curtain. Like this is the Wizard of Oz moment. Yeah. No. So yeah, that's uh, that's the original version of this song. And to be fair, like the Bahamen never denied that it is a cover. The guy who sang that was a guy named Anselm Douglas. And he was from Trinidad. He put out that song in uh, 1997. And you might not have heard of it, but this song was actually kind of a hit in the Caribbean during the late 90s. But the origins of this song and its infectious hook are surprisingly complex. Therefore, we're going to have to take another detour. So this is probably going to be the craziest part of this episode. Like, seriously, the story of who wrote Who Let the Dogs Out is a mindfuck. So we all know that Bahamen made Who Let the Dogs Out into a hit, but it turns out that over the years, numerous individuals from all over the world have claimed credit for writing all or part of this song. It's resulted in multiple lawsuits and millions of dollars in settlements. So I gotta acknowledge a source here. There's a 2019 documentary called Who Let the Dogs Out by a filmmaker named Brett Hodge. You can find it on Amazon Prime Video. It's only a dollar to rent. I highly encourage you to watch it. It's really entertaining. But it basically just explores the history of who wrote Who Let the Dogs Out in excruciating detail. So most of the following section is going to be drawn from that documentary. I'm going to let you guys know ahead of time. I did not write any of this part of the script. I have not seen this film. I'm completely (laughs) on the ride with you. I deliberately kept this from Cal because it's such a mindfuck that I wanted him to react to it in real time. Like, it's just so fucking insane. So So I hope you guys are excited. I'm excited. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's back up a little bit. So you just heard the quote-unquote original version of Who Let the Dogs Out by Anselm Douglas. So this was a, a hit in the Caribbean, but it was pretty much unknown outside of that region. But at some point, a copy of the song fell into the hands of a producer named Jonathan King. Jonathan King is another figure like Steve Greenberg, where ordinary people haven't heard of him, but he's a really big deal in the music industry. He's had like a crazy long history of success in pop music. He discovered and produced the band Genesis, actually gave them their name too. And he's had a hand in a number of top 40 hits like Sugar Sugar, Hooked on a Feeling, Johnny Reggae. And he also discovered and promoted the Chumbawamba hit, Tub Thumpin'. So if you like that song... Fuck yeah. If you like that song, he's probably the reason you've heard of it. Otherwise, it would have just like stayed in the little British anarcho-punk scene. Now, unlike Who Let the Dogs Out, I'm not ashamed to say I loved Tub Thumpin'. Every, everybody loves Tub Thumpin', man. That song is still fun. I, I prefer the Homer Simpson version. I get knocked down. I get knocked down again. <laughs> never gonna knock me down. <laughs> One thing I should also mention about Jonathan King, and I feel weird talking about this, but I'd probably feel even weirder not talking about it. 
He's a convicted child molester. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm s- but no, like he was convicted of child sexual abuse in 2001. Yeah, sentenced to seven years, but was released on parole in 2005. And I only mention that because, like, you just can't gloss over that. No, that's it is part of the story in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood and the music industry are crawling with these types worse than the it, Catholic it, it Church. Is, it, it is. It's it's gross and just a sad part of, of the entertainment world. I'm not going to, like, get into, like, the history of, uh, of Jonathan King's, like, legal troubles, but... I did like learn on Wikipedia that uh, the first time he was arrested in 2001, one of the people who helped bail him out was Simon Cowell. Oh, God. Yeah, for real. Simon! Simon Cowell paid 50,000 pounds to help bail Jonathan King out of jail for molesting children. He must have had a record he needed to know. put out. That's how big of a deal Jonathan King is, I guess. I, you know, I was realizing we we made it exactly half an episode before bringing up pedo somehow. We yeah, <laughs> we tried again. This is the thing; it's like inherent in this industry for some reason. But he also was never really repentant about it. He felt that like the media, the like British media, like really screwed him over and gave him a bad name. And at one point, he made like like some kind of play or movie where he played all the parts. And he was trying to, like, he was trying to exonerate himself and, and show that that the media was no, screwing him over. It's a thing. He did a one man show of how it was right that he raped these kids. He, he's a wacky dude. That's bad, man. That's really funny though. We we might someday have to do a mini sode on Jonathan King. Like I just just what I just from what I could glance off of Wikipedia alone tells me that this guy's led a fucked up life. Yeah. When we're mature enough to, to cover a pedophile, we'll get yeah. into it. I, I couldn't not tell you that, Cal. I'm just picturing like when I heard that he did a movie where he played all the parts. Like I thought of like those Eddie Murphy. Yeah, movies. that's the funniest thing. Ever. <laughs> like, it's, it's like the clumps, but with a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> the clumps, but the clumps about how and he rapes himself. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan King had a hairstylist named Keith. Keith liked to vacation in Trinidad and would occasionally bring back tapes of local music for Mr. King. One of those tapes included Anselm Douglas's Doggy, and Jonathan King liked it so much that he recorded his own version under the name Fat Jack and his pack of pets. Let's listen to that one. What the fuck? <laughs> I know, I know. So why, why did he decide he needed to be the Caribbean guy? 
I know, like, he could have just given Anselm Douglas a record deal. Like, instead, like, he, it's like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pretend to be a Caribbean guy, and I'm going to be a fucking millionaire. Well, and then what's with the lady through the beginning? That, yeah. It's insane. It's almost like he just went to the studio receptionist and asked her, come here, love. You, you want to do a track for me? Just, <laughs> just lay down. Just lay down some vocals. Like, like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> It's a character. It's a character. I'm, I'm, being a, I'm being a Caribbean man. Hey, man, just feel the vibe. Feel the vibe, love. <laughs> so, yeah, surprisingly, that did not become a hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. Can you, like, imagine that one being played at, like, an NFL playoff game? <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to like oh, they're trying to like hype people up yes. and just, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but here's the thing that version of the song was actually the first version that steve greenberg heard now steve greenberg didn't like it any more than you probably did but he also noticed that he couldn't get the hook out of his head and this made him think that maybe this song could actually become a hit if he could get the right singer for it and that made him think of the baja men now, ultimately, we know that Greenberg was right. This was the best song for the Baha men to do. But we'll get back to that story in a little bit. First, we have to jump ahead to the 2000s and settle a little legal dispute. Okay, so, you know, just flash forward a little bit. So after Who Let the Dogs Out became a worldwide hit, Anselm Douglas, who, remember, was credited as the songwriter, made a shit ton of money off of royalties. But of course, with mo money comes mo problems, and Douglas faced at least two lawsuits from parties claiming that they were the ones responsible for the hit. So the first lawsuit came from Douglas's friend Ozzy Gurley. Uh, Ozzy was credited as the arranger on the track Doggy, but he later claimed that he co-wrote the song, and this resulted in a gigantic six-year legal battle, which you know was settled out of court, but it ruined a friendship in the process. Wow. So the Bahamen are responsible for... At least one real-life friendship destroyed. Yes. <laughs> the second lawsuit came from two guys named Patrick Stevenson and Leroy Williams. These guys were production assistants at a Canadian radio station. They claimed that they were the ones that came up with the hook who let the dogs out for a radio jingle in 1995. So, like again, this wasn't an entire song. It was basically just the who let the dogs out. Woof, 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 woof. Like, that was it. But when you think about it, that's most of the song, right? Yeah. You see, it turns out that Anselm Douglas's brother-in-law worked as a DJ at that same radio station, and he passed the hook along to Douglas. So this suit was also settled out of court, and Anselm Douglas had to admit in legal writing that he didn't write that hook. All right. Are you with me so far, Cal? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I feel like I need a chart with pictures and string tying them all together, but I, I think I'm with you. <laughs> Well, good, because it's about to get even weirder. You see, it turns out that Stevenson and Williams weren't the first guys to come up with that hook. Check out this song from 1994, recorded by a production duo called 20 Fingers with a rapper named Gillette.
NBA Jam was a good game. <laughs> so that was the song You're a Dog by 20 Fingers featuring Gillette. And I will grant that it's not exactly the same. It's who let the dogs loose, not who let the dogs out. And yeah. it's a refrain, it's not a chorus, but god damn. It's pretty fucking close. I know, and it's it's a year, at least a year before Stevenson and Williams said that they wrote their song. So, like in the documentary, the producers actually ask Stevenson and Williams, have you ever heard of a song by 20 Fingers and Gillette called You're a Dog? And these guys respond like, no. <laughs> Yeah, right. What? I, what? Me? Why? I never heard of that. So, would you agree that it's pretty wild <laughs> that your song goes who, who, who? The almost the same way. Yeah. So here's the thing, though. Twenty Fingers never actually got involved in all of this legal shit, and that was because they were humble enough to admit that they probably heard the phrase somewhere else. But where did they hear it from? To answer that, we have to go back to 1992 to Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. Dude, that song fucking rips. I don't care what anybody yeah. says. <laughs> I, I like that. That's the second best one to Fat Jacks. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that one. I could see you were at some kind of middle school mixer back in the day. Like <laughs> we would be fucking jamming to that. Hell right? yeah! <laughs> Trying to do the worm. <laughs> so that was actually recorded by two white kids from Jacksonville named Brett and Joe. They were part of a rap group called Miami Boom Productions. Yeah, they were from uh, Jacksonville, but it's called Miami Boom because there was a scene called Miami Bass, and that was like that was a, sure. a, a Miami Bass song. I think they just didn't want to be associated with Jacksonville. <laughs> no, no one wants Jacksonville Boom. No, what, what what's a Jacksonville Boom? That's when your meth lab blows up. <laughs> <laughs> so Miami Boom Productions—they were never big players. They never got a record deal. They never released anything commercially. They were basically just two high school kids having fun. Actually, they uh, one of them says they wrote the lyrics to that song on the back of a Little Caesars bag because they were working at Little Caesars at the time. <laughs> that seems fitting. Yeah. But imagine this, Cal. Like, imagine that you, know, you write this like little goofy-ass song when you're in high school, and then like you stop rapping, you go to college, you move on with your life. Then 10 years later, you turn on the radio and your fucking song oh, is being dude, that'd played. that'd be insane. That would be such a trip. <laughs> what a mindfuck. That'd be like uh, us finding out Happy Fun Communist Cheese Party, like <laughs> SNL used one of our skits. Yeah. Cal and I actually did a sketch comedy show way, way, way back in the day. 
Yeah, you'll never see any footage of it because I don't think it, any of it exists. And if we did, we'd probably burn it. It exists but- on a VHS hidden in my top drawer. The same way you'd hide like, I don't know, condoms or something. When yeah, you're no, a kid. like someone's going to have to do some Mission Impossible shit to find that. So Brett and Joe knew that they had written the song first, but they didn't have any legal proof of it because the only extant copy of the song was on a floppy disk. That's the save icon for yeah, the yeah. youngins out there. So event so what happens in the documentary is that the producers like they track down the sampler that these discs were recorded on. <laughs> they put the floppy disks into the sampler and they're able to finally definitively prove that these discs from 1992 are the original Who Let the Dogs Out song. Okay, so that's that's it, right? It can't it can't possibly go back any further, right, Cal? Oh no, god, no. How can it? It can, and it does. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? So, yeah. So, actually, like, it turns out, if you go back a little bit, high school football teams were doing chants, as they still do to this day, and you can find video footage of these high school football teams chanting something like, Who let the dogs out? Woof, 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 woof. There's video of that going all the way back to, like, the mid-80s. You know, in a weird way, that makes sense. That's what it is at the end of the day. It's a fucking chant. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the the chant is most of the song. That high school chant is like the first bacteria you put in a Petri dish. <laughs> and that's how we ha- got where we are now. The whole reason that I told this whole story is because think about Who Let the Dogs Out. It's probably the simplest song we may ever cover on this show. It's so fucking stupid. 90% of it is in that little hook. So you wouldn't think that a song like that would involve lawsuits and plagiarism and theft and international intrigue the way this shit does. This should not be a documentary's length worth of <laughs> material. Like, imagine a fucking Barbie girl is is, a, yeah. is worth a one-hour documentary. <laughs> Blue Davidi. You find out, like, there's, like, this whole story behind Davidi. Like, no, I, I came up with that first. <laughs> no, it was, first it was Dubidi, but, you know, <laughs> but then they changed it to Davidi. But my, my shit was the fucking first. <laughs> so perhaps, in summary, we may finally never know who let the dogs out. I think it's an existential question. It goes back to Aristotle. Yes. The dog was in our heart the entire time. (laughs) Were the dogs ever really in, Cal? Let's get back to the Baja men. Now, remember, at this point, their singer had just left, so the band didn't even have a front man. They ended up replacing Nehemiah Heald with not one but three guys, Rick Carey, Marvid Prosper, and Amrit Heald. These are the three guys that you remember from the Who Let the Dogs Out video. And actually, two of these guys had family connections to the band. Rick is the son of guitarist Pat Carey, and Amrit is Nehemiah Heald's nephew. Do you think that was awkward at all? Do you is think there replacing was a bit, your uncle? Yeah, was there a bit of like, you know, the apprentice beating the master <laughs> going on here? I, I kind of want to think it was like a passing the torch thing. Like, <laughs> it's like, my boy, I've trained you for this all my life. <laughs> <laughs> I sat and put in the work with these fuckers, and now they have this dog song, and I know it's going to get big, so hop on board. Today, at last, you become a member of the Baja Men. <laughs> yes. You were a Baja boy, now you're a Baja man. Yes. <laughs> Together, this trio transformed the vibe of the band into something more aggressive, youthful, and modern. So, like, like, let's just circle back to, like, where our story had started. So, Steve Greenberg, he heard the cover of Doggy, and he wanted the Bahaman to do it. 
But actually, Isaiah Taylor didn't want to do it at first. I totally get that. I'm sure to him, he knew this was like that proverbial sellout moment. Yeah. And I think also uh, he says that the song was popular in the Caribbean. So like from his vantage point, it's like, why would you do that again? It's I don't know. It's like if we recorded recorded wet ass pussy. Like not that you and I rec- would record that song, but it's just the first contemporary hit that popped into my head. Like, actually, yeah, you and I, I should no, do that. This seems actually like a worthwhile idea. <laughs> okay. So eventually, Steve Greenberg convinced Isaiah Taylor to record the song with Bahamen. It was the first song that they recorded it with the three new singers. And so Steve Greenberg, you got to picture this. He has the tape in his hand. He plays the song for his bosses at the record label, and they laughed at him. I wish I could say I was surprised. No, no, they they didn't see it as a hit, and it's dumb. Like, sometimes dumb things work, and sometimes dumb things don't. So what did Steve Greenberg do? He quit, and he founded his own label, S-Curve, and he released Who Let the Dogs Out as the first single. Yeah, you gotta respect the balls on that. I love that. No shit, right? That's like when Michael Scott started the Michael Scott Paper Company. <laughs> this is yeah, this is like the Michael Scott Paper Company, except it takes over the yeah. the paper industry. He was actually right the whole time. <laughs> so when Escurve was promoting Who Let the Dogs Out, they had a two pronged marketing strategy: the sports market and the kids market. Yeah, that's exactly how I remember the song. Oh yeah, every stadium and all over Nickelodeon. And we were like, like we said before, we were kids when this came out, so this was blasted in our face constantly. So you probably remember how often this song was played in sports stadiums, and that was actually by design. You see, Steve Greenberg actually tasked one of his friends with the assignment of finding out who picks the records in every baseball and football stadium in the country, and basically just like badgering them into playing "Who Let the Dogs Out." <laughs> what else are you gonna play? <laughs> this is the best song you got. I, I would love it if it, I feel like he like went full gangster on them. <laughs> it was like it's a pretty it's a pretty nice sports stadium you got. She be a shame be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> You're gonna play who let the dogs out, <laughs> or some dogs are gonna be let out on you. <laughs> <laughs> so the first like major sports stadium to start using who let the dogs out was Safeco Field. That's where the Seattle Mariners play baseball. And it was used as the walk-up music for Alex Rodriguez. And uh, he was doing really well at the time. Like, he was just like an up-and-coming phenomenon. And uh, and the Mariners were really hot, too. Like, I think they had like a 90-plus win season that year. They went on to go in the, into the playoffs. And eventually, you know, like, this song started to spread to other sports stadiums until it was in every baseball stadium. And then football starts in the fall, and it's in every football stadium. And then it just, like, it just took over the whole sports scene. So then the other thing was the kids' market, and this one was probably even more interesting. See, the team behind Bahamen uh, were interested in lobbying to get the song played on a show on Nickelodeon called Nick Video Picks. Do you remember Nick Video Picks, Cal? I don't at all. Me neither, and I watched a lot of Nickelodeon, so this is weird. But apparently this was like uh, Nickelodeon's version of TRL. <laughs> that sounds horrific. I know, if you could make TRL worse <laughs> somehow. <laughs> But like you know, you would like vote online for the song that you would want to get played on Nick Video Picks, and they would like play the video. And of course, it must have been like a pretty limited number of songs because like obviously you can't play like any rap music <laughs> yeah. or like you can't have kids pick Eminem Stan. <laughs> you, know? you can't have them playing Nookie. Or- <laughs> you know, I just realized on the story you told me. You know, so they they corner the kids market in an alternate universe. 
John King got the hit and he cornered the kids market. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> so in a way, we're we're lucky the Baha men exist. They're kind of heroes. Oh boy. <laughs> so yeah, so so they would yeah, they were trying to get this show on Nick Video Picks, and they would like call everyone they knew, like all their like lovers and friends and relatives, and they would just have them all log on to the Nickelodeon site and just click <laughs> over and over again. I'm just picturing like this, like if you ever make a movie about Baha men, they're like huddled in front of this like Apple computer and they're clicking Baha men, vote. They hit refresh. It takes fucking three minutes to refresh, <laughs> of course, because it's 2000. And then they do it and they do it and they do it. And then finally, yay, we did it. <laughs> we got the Baha men on Nickelodeon. You know, the internet has learned since then the dangers of letting a single IP address vote more than once. <laughs> no. Mountain Dew did a name the next flavor contest. Oh no! And 4chan made it. They had no limit set, just like this. What? 4chan made it so the winning flavor was called Hitler did nothing wrong. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Fucking a man. So obviously we know that who let the dogs out just took over the kids' universe. Like it wasn't long before corporate America figured out that this band was a license to print money, as far as kids were concerned. As such, Disney and Nickelodeon got into a bidding war for the soundtrack rights to Who Let the Dogs Out. Disney wanted it for the sequel to 101 Dalmatians, while Nickelodeon wanted it for Rugrats in Paris. Ultimately, Rugrats won the day. God damn it. Doesn't that seem like a missed opportunity, Cal? Yeah, 101 Dalmatians is literally perfect. Definitely much more on brand. You know, imagine 101 Dalmatians getting loose. I would want to know. I would want to know who let those dogs out because that has consequences. <laughs> that it got commandeered by a bunch of babies with misshapen heads. I know. There's like only like one dog in Rugrats. So we tend to think of Who Let the Dogs Out as a kids song, right? And in, you know, indeed, the band won you know, not one but two Kids Choice Awards that year. But is it really all that family friendly? To find out, let's take a deep dive into the lyrics of Who Let the Dogs Out. Okay, so here's what's going to happen now. I am going to have Cal read out the lyrics to Who Let the Dogs Out. He has never seen this, so we're just going to have him re- recite the lyrics and we'll just free associate what comes to mind. All right, let's do this. I can't wait. <laughs> <clears throat> I got to get my game face on. Oh, yeah, just center. All right. Well, the party was nice and the party was bumping. Yippee-yo. And everybody was having a ball. Until the fellas start the name-calling, and the girls respond to the call. I hear a woman shout out, Who let the dogs out? Last year in the dance, you had a ball. You call me Millibug and Skettle? Get back, Fluffy. Get back, Scruffy. Get back, you flea-infested mongrel. Now I tell myself, Hey, man. Don't get angry to hear dem girls calling dem canine. But they tell me, hey, man, it's part of the party. They put a woman in front and a man behind. I hear a woman shout out, who let the dogs out? This is the start of the rap bridge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, if I'm a dog, the party is on. I got to get my groove because my mind done gone. Do you see the rays coming from my eyes? Walking through the place. The DJ man's breaking it down. Me in my white short shorts. And I can't see color. Any color will do. I'll stick it on you. That's why they call me Pitbull. Because I'm the man of the land. And when they see me, they say, Woo. 
A doggy is nothing if you no have a bone. All doggy, hold your bone. Yay! <laughs> well done, well done, my friend. <laughs> that was my dramatic yeah. reading. The lyrics are interesting. They they are like okay. What so what do you what comes to mind when you think about those lyrics that you just read? Well, so initially it came off to me like you know a chauvinistic song. Like we're coming in, we're yeah. the dogs. This is our club. Uh, woman in front, man behind. Yeah, I'm holding my bone or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's very very sexual lyrics, isn't it? Oh yeah. I I would not call it kid friendly. No, but <laughs> but like but the thing is like nobody knew the lyrics. To no, the you can't understand the day, shit like... that guy's saying. But you know, fun fact: the part where he says DJ Man as a kid, I thought he was talking about Digimon. Because the way he said like, <laughs> Digimon, you know. Uh, I I I had no idea what any of those rap bridge lyrics were. And actually, like it should I should note that the rap bridge is original to the Bahamen, but everything else was written by Anselm Douglas or Ozzy Gurley. Or yeah, Patrick Stevenson, or where the fuck, wherever the fuck you believe. We know at least it wasn't Miami Boom. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so here's the thing, though. The actual, in terms of the actual meaning of the song, Anselm Douglas claims it's actually a female empowerment anthem. Basically, it's women pushing back against men who slut shame them. You see, remember those words "millibug" and "skettle" that were in the second verse? Mm-hmm. Well, those are actually Caribbean slang terms. They mean like the equivalent of slut or whore or something like that. So the men call them, call these women millibug and skettle. And the women push back by saying, get back fluffy and get back scruffy. Get back for you flea infested mongrel. They're calling the men dogs. And they're saying, who let those dogs out? So it's, yeah, it's women pushing back against slut shaming. Once you say it like that, I actually buy it. And I'm sure that's what A-Rod was thinking when he put it as his walk-up music (laughs) for Seattle Mariners games. In addition to two Kids' Choice Awards, Who Let the Dogs Out earned numerous other honors, including two Billboard Awards and a Grammy for Best Dance Recording. This was actually like a really big deal in the Bahamas because they were the first Bahamian artist to win a Grammy. This was considered such a big deal that the city of Nassau held a parade in their honor and the prime minister of the country gave them all keys to the city. Yeah, I, I love this because this, I have a movie scene in my head, basically. I know, like it, it writes itself. Like, like I can just see the guy handing it to him, like, this song, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> but! You made us proud, Mom. Yeah. When people think about the Bahamas, it won't just be rum and hurricanes. It'll be rum, hurricanes. And dogs and running around. Oh, man. <laughs> no, so this is, yeah, this is like the apex of the feel-good Bahamen story. This is that point in the movie where they're on top of like some kind of platform. Crowds are cheering around them. They're getting this key with a photo op. And then you dissolve to black and you fade into the follow-up album, Move It Like This. Hey, yeah.
<sighs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when we started this, I fully expected, you know, the Who Let the Dogs album to be the one where I was sitting there going, why the fuck am I doing a podcast about bad music? <laughs> I actually, it's not that bad because, spoiler alert, guys, it keeps getting way worse from here. Yeah. Let me put it this way. There was a YouTube comment on the video for this song that said something to the effect of, I remember this song from a disc that came with my Mighty Kids meal when I was a kid. And I feel like that pretty much sums up the vibe of this song. Yeah. No, to me, this is something you hear at like the trampoline zone or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it feels like their main goal in producing this song was to win a second consecutive Kids Choice Award. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just zero in on that. Really, the rest of that album isn't much better than that song. I'm sorry, but every song is just super cheesy, super overproduced, and the lyrics are vapid even by Baja Men standards. Basically, they're just kind of devolving from Junkanoo into generic dance and hip-hop. So we're in what I call soundtrack land, <laughs> where they're clearly just writing songs to get put in some fucking movie soundtrack. You know, Maybe we can sell this to Secret Life of Pets and they'll put it in the trailer. Yeah, it's just the most middle-of-the-road corporate schlock. And it's funny that you mention soundtracks, because the Bahamut, during this period, they were on a ton of different soundtracks. The song Best Years of Our Lives was on the Shrek soundtrack. The song Holla ended up on Garfield. And then they did a cover of Elton John's Crocodile Rock for, drumroll please, the Crocodile Hunter movie. No way! I almost wonder if like they wanted the Elton John version, but like just didn't want to pay quite as much money. Like, but <laughs> who are those? Who are those Caribbean guys that yeah, are like, covering oh, anything? Oh, Bahamut. Oh, they'll they'll do it for cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but that might not be the cringiest one of all. Check out this song from a Disney-produced album called Mickey's Dance Party. Isaiah stayed up all night writing those lyrics. <laughs> I hope not, dude. I hope that some like mid-level like corporate executive at Disney did that for him. Like, can you imagine like the band on the tour bus be like, "Okay, man, so we gotta, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta, we gotta do hula dogs, but it's it's uh, Disney. So what? What? What do they have? Oh, as soon as Snow White, she's asleep. So who woke Snow White up? It's brilliant, brilliant, man. There's no, there's no dogs in this movie. But what about, what about, uh, what about they got? What they got? What they got? The dwarves. They got dwarves. Uh, Let's do dwarves. They got dwarves. Hi, di hi ho. Hi, di hi ho. It's genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I bet you're right. It's some executive, like on the <laughs> fifth day of his cocaine bender. <laughs> <Like, laughs> I need a, I need something to put in here. 
Oh, God. Those Baja men, they'll do fucking anything. <laughs> Let's just be a little bit fair. It's hard to succeed in the music business. And like you want to seize opportunities. And yeah, these guys have been working so hard for so long. Part of me gets it, but also like just don't you just have a little bit of integrity? <laughs> like <laughs> fucking Disney who woke Snow White up. I think you get a uh, taste of that green and you can't go back. Like Isaiah's like, I could pay all my bills. <laughs> you know, he's just living the life finally. Yeah. But they were already millionaires, and they already lived in the Bahamas. Like, it's not like they can move somewhere cool. It's not like they're living here. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, needless to say, the Bahamen weren't doing commercially all that well around this time. Who Let the Dogs Out, the album, went triple platinum, but Move It Like This only sold less than 300,000 copies. They were making a lot of money on soundtracks, but they definitely weren't doing anything on the charts. In 2002, Steven Greenberg and Bahamen parted ways. Not long after that, vocalists Marvin Prosper and Amrit Heald left the band, and they were replaced by two new guys, Leroy Butler and Dyson Knight. Steve Greenberg finally bailed. I don't. Th- yeah, I don't know anything about his relationship with the band at this point. Like, I don't know if like they got into some kind of blow up. I I assume they're on good terms. I think he probably just realized the ship has sailed. We're yeah. not topping. Who let the dogs out? Yeah, like he was like just about to do his work with the Jonas Brothers around this time. Okay. So like, I think he just saw like, okay, there's my cash cow. Yeah, that's <laughs> a faster moving train. We're going over there. Yeah. The Bahamen kind of floundered without him, like to the extent that they, not not like they were making like revolutionary great music before, but I, I, I really think that like after this, after Steve leaves and after those two other vocalists leave, like they, they really tank. If you thought that what we just played for you was bad, Take a listen to this. This is their 2004 album, Hala. Hala with an exclamation point. It's, you know, it's, it really, it's torturous listening to all this music. Like, not just because, you know, it's bad, but because it stays with me. Like, when I'm at work making drinks, I have songs like that playing in my head. I'm one of those people that I, I always have a song stuck in my head almost like every minute. And I can't choose what I hear. And sometimes I hear, like, move it like this, or I hear, <laughs> fucking holla i don't like it i don't like anything about that song but it's just fucking with me this for is the hours pain. and hours this is the pain we put ourselves through yeah, for you guys just, yeah we, we're we're really suffering for that, you guys that, I, that I hope happened you appreciate to me, this dude that happened to me in the shower this morning with <laughs> we didn't play it for you guys but they do a cover of lime in the coconut oh god and that i was sitting there in the shower going lime in the coconut and their version not even the good one 
I don't know how they made that song worse, but they did. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, something. No, actually, you know what, Cal? We we should play that song. Actually, like one thing I forgot about that song is that did you notice they're using auto tune? Yeah, this is two thousand two. I don't think they're the first to use auto tune, but they're definitely ahead of the curve a little bit. Kanye wasn't doing it yet. No, like maybe that's where he got the idea. <laughs> he found the shit in his mighty meal. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, all right, can I let's can I get a uh, a, a mighty kids meal with a double hamburger? And uh, make sure I get the CD with it. Like, all right, oh, let me put this in. Oh, my God, this is genius. I'm going to do this. <laughs> so a couple other things about Hala. First of all, that was the song that was on the Garfield soundtrack. I knew Garfield was going to claw his way into this somehow. They just seem like a Garfield soundtrack band. <laughs> no, like just especially that. That fucking movie. That the movie like tanked. By the way, well, if you've never heard, I can just picture some CG orange fat cat <laughs> dancing around to this shit. Like, <laughs> this is where we are as a culture. These are like the movie producers that just have no respect for the taste of the American public. Like you dumb motherfuckers will buy anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so by this point, the Bahamen have basically been reduced to just a generic pop slash hip-hop band you gotta wonder what isaiah taylor is thinking during this period he brought these guys up from scratch he worked his ass off playing nightclubs hotels doing covers just assembling this whole band together taking them all around the world taking them to you know atlantic city to japan to england to wherever the fuck they were and you listen to this album you can't even hear his bass we already showed you he's a good bass player but you don't hear him. You hear these fucking drum machines and synths and just layers of just studio crap. All I can figure is he's in full collect the paycheck mode. Yeah. What, why leave the band if money's coming in? I can kind of understand from his perspective. Either I get this check or this like rich white guy in a suit gets to keep it. I might as well just milk this for all it's worth. So there's a, a YouTuber I really like. He's called Todd in the Shadows. He did a video on Baja Men, and he described them in this period of their career. He called them the Caribbean Black Eyed Peas. That's perfect. <laughs> it really, it really is. Like it's just Black Eyed Peas with like the occasional cowbell or steel drum yeah. buried very deep in the mix. 
Okay, before we leave Hala, I want to play one more song. And like, I, I'm sorry, but this song is so bad that we, we can't ignore it. It's called Put Em Up. Dig a bomb drop face down and make ya. Throw a beat down like a PlayStation. Get to the ground of the rhythm nation. Cause I'm gonna make ya. A big bass in my people mover. Suck it right down like a smart booper. Hip shape crazy like a hula hooper. Cause I'm gonna make ya. Okay, so I have, I have a bit of a theory of what they're trying to do here. So this is 2004, right? This is four years after Who Let the Dogs Out came out. So they know that they just planted these seeds with a generation of like nine and 10 year olds. But now those nine and 10 year olds are like 13 and 14. You know, they're teenagers. They're just starting to get a little bit harder. <laughs> they're not all the way hard. They're not DMX hard yet, but they're a little <laughs> they're bit harder. DMX. So they're trying to just, they're just trying to stay with their newfound audience a little bit. They're trying to shepherd these kids into something gradually less cheesy. Was this when like dance movies were big? Like Bring It On? Did that come oh, out right around God. now? You know, I didn't think about that, but were they trying yeah. to work their way into like, <laughs> please, some corny- please get into the Bring It On soundtrack? I imagine their manager like crashing the filming of You Got Served. It's just like, you guys, I know the perfect guys for this soundtrack. (laughs) You remember the Baja Men? Like, no, no, they did Who Let the Dogs Out. Yeah, yeah, I I know it was dumb, but like, no, listen, these guys are still making, no, they're still around. They're still making music. (laughs) So following Hala, which again, surprise, surprise, did not top the charts. (laughs) So after that album, the Bahamen took a bit of a hiatus, and they returned about 10 years later in 2015 with their comeback album, Ride With Me. The comeback no one wanted. This was yet another attempt to update the band's sound for modern audiences. Let's take a listen. Nick prints me a script and I kind of write notes in and for this one all I wrote next to all I have is I hate this 
<laughs> I think this one gives me the most visceral reaction of all their songs. I, it's just, oh. I'm going to put on my, my old man hat for a second. And all you fucking millennials and Gen Zs, stop buying music like this. For the love of God. Any All these songs, they start with this course of voices going, huh, huh. Uh, 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 or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Like you're all one. And then you, you get this build up with some generic drop. And then it's some bouncy course where they just chant something like in this case. Yeah. Day, like, day, day, like, dude, day. Play this on a piano. It's just like two notes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, this is like a trend. This is all pop music right now. And it, it pisses me off because it's tailor made to be in like cell phone commercials. And if you can listen to the music and picture some tech company selling something to you like <laughs> are you sick of being tethered by cables yeah <laughs> or do you believe that we're stronger together than separate and you can you know hear all this shit over it as it builds up <laughs> don't buy that on record <laughs> god if some 20 year old from la you know wrote this song and recorded this song i would get it like that's like that's just what music sounds like nowadays but for the Bahamen to just so shamelessly just try to <laughs> ape that sound. Yeah, that's the saddest part. <laughs> yeah. These guys are in their 40s. Like, like remember what Junkanoo sounded like. This is a long way from back to the island. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're a long fucking way. They are off. They're never going back to the island. <laughs> They're on, like, the fucking North Pole by now. <laughs> and here's the other thing about this song is that these guys, you know, they're a multi-generational band. So, like, the youngest ones are, like, in their mid-30s, if I'm being generous. The oldest ones are, like, if they were in Americans, they'd be collecting Social Security. Like, so, we're going to party like there's no tomorrow every <laughs> night and every day? <laughs> Think about the 40-year-olds you know that, like, adhere to that philosophy of life. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's not a good look. No. <laughs> I'm going to party like it's no tomorrow. I'm on my fourth DUI. <laughs> I know Isaiah, his partying is probably like ibuprofen for his back pain at this point. I know, right? So that's the story of Bahamen. They spent decades working their asses off, put out a ton of music, and for one brief shining moment made their country proud. Yet for the average American... Their career is forever linked to Who Let the Dogs Out, and the association is not a positive one. In 2008, Spinner Magazine ranked the song number two on its list of worst songs ever. Oh, come on. And Rolling Stone ranked it the third most annoying song of all time. I agree it's, with you, Cal. It's not, it's not that no, bad. No, it's not that bad. I can think of three songs more annoying than Who Let the Dogs Out off the top of my head. There were no Jimmy Buffett songs on either of those lists, I checked. <laughs> <laughs> That's offensive. But why do so many people hate Who Let the Dogs Out? Ultimately, I think it's the same thing that made the song so successful in the first place. It's the hook. It's just so simple and catchy. You hear it once and you can't get it out of your head. And it's so simple to sing. You know, you don't even need to carry a note. Like the whitest soccer mom in Iowa can sing Who Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> and it'll sound exactly the same as the Bahamans <laughs> singing Who Let the Dogs Out. Come on, Timmy! <laughs> Who let the, the dogs, dogs out? out? Woof, woof, woof. You, you. <laughs> like, so, yeah, the song is energetic. It gets people up and moving. But that's really all the song does. It's just like the musical equivalent of cocaine. It provides this short little rush. And then after it's over, you just kind of feel all empty inside. The Bahamen are legit professional musicians. 
And I think if they really wanted to, they could have produced some serious albums that, you know, maybe explored their Caribbean influences in you know, more innovative ways. But that's just not what came to be. Like, the only time they really tried to do that was on Junkanoo, and it just didn't work out for them. So they they had no incentive to to try to be musically innovative. Yeah, I think it, it would have been interesting if their first stuff had sold well enough, they could have kept going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that was part of Steve Greenberg's thinking, now that I really reflect on it. Because remember how in 1999, the Latin craze kind of took over, like all these Latin songs were doing really mm-hmm. well. Maybe Steve just kind of thought like, like maybe Caribbean music just sure. could, could randomly take off. Who knows? That makes a lot of sense. You know, we had talked about at the start, you know, Junkanoo, it's good. I would give it like a seven out of 10. Yeah. And it's fun to imagine if they had pushed in that direction and made a genuinely prolific Caribbean Junkanoo mm-hmm. style album. But I guess that's just uh, something we'll never see. No. Like, they they have the chops. They could do it. But they kind of became boxed in by their one hit. When you're a band like this, you're facing pressure from all these record company executives and Nickelodeon executives who want the next thing. So once you start on something like Who Let the Dogs Out, you just kind of dig a rut for yourselves. And it's kind of hard to get out. And you could try reinventing yourself with, like, Hala or night and day, but you just it just kind of feels like you're lost. Yeah, it's like anything George Lucas has done since the first three <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah. The Bahamans spent over a decade chasing commercial success, and when they finally found it, they milked the shit out of it and wouldn't let go. And you know what? I can't blame them for that. You gotta remember that these guys come from a relatively poor country where you gotta bust your ass to even survive, let alone succeed. I couldn't figure out how old Isaiah Taylor is, but he must have been at least 40 by the time Who Let the Dogs Out broke. When you're that old and you've been hustling for that long, highfalutin notions like coolness or artistic integrity just seem like hollow, pretentious tropes. And if some guy in a suit wants to write you a big-ass check for a song on the Garfield soundtrack, of course you're going to take it. I honestly can't say that I would have said no to something like the Garfield soundtrack or even something like who woke so white up. I'd, <laughs> I, I'd love to think that I have more integrity than that, but I've never been offered a million dollars to right, do something. Right. Like, I, I have a pool, but I don't have a jacuzzi. Yeah. Plus, like, you know, you got wives and kids and grandkids and shit. And they're a fucking nine piece band, you know? That's, right. That's a lot of money to split all those ways. <laughs> the Baja Empire. But before we leave, let me assert one final claim. The Baja Men's version of Who Let the Dogs Out is not the worst song of all time. Indeed, it's not even the worst version of Who Let the Dogs Out. That title, in my opinion, belongs to this track.
That song actually made me angry. <laughs> I gotta, <laughs> I gotta calm down for a second. Cal is like a huge metalhead, and like I, I love metal too. Like for the record, that was the metalcore band Our Last Night, and they recorded that actually with Bahaman in the studio in 2018. And yep, <laughs> that get, you gave why? me why did that need to happen? You gave me a chance to count to ten. I can talk rationally about this. <laughs> that's just insulting that was clickbait in musical form oh look these guys did a metal cover of who yep. let the dogs out <laughs> yep 100 percent. and you know it's it's not like the baja men understand metal. it's not like they give a crap no it's just like well yeah i mean it's a way for them to you know become relevant again so right i see why they did it i'm not mad at baja men i'm mad at our last night yeah because fuck you do your own fucking songs don't get the baja men just for memes <laughs> Uh, all right, so what did we learn today, Cal? Once you sell out and you start making that money, it's hard to ever come back from it. That's your identity at that point. Once you have a Who Let the Dogs Out, the rest of your life is trying to have another Who Let the Dogs Out. Yeah. And time and musical trends are going to keep moving, with or without you. It's almost as if like once you go pop, you, you just can't go back from that. And it's not even about whether you want to or not, it's about the people around you and the incentive structure around all of it and just, you know, maintaining what you've built. Like right now I'll make a not so bold prediction, but I think our show is going to feature a lot of this pattern. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be dealing with a lot of one hit wonders, a lot of people who've produced cringy tracks that happen to make it big, but they all had a reason to do what they did. In, in the Bahamans case, it's because their producer and manager who they really trusted convinced them to do it. Uh, they got success. They got you know the money and the limelight and the just the worldwide adoration. But did it come at a price? Just their soul. Well, that was uh, episode one of Polishing Turds with Nick and Cal. Thank you so much for listening. If you like us, please uh, visit our Facebook page, Polishing Turds. We're on Instagram at polishing.turds. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, or if you know some shit about the Caribbean that we don't and you want to explain what dumb white assholes we are, send an email to polishingturdspodcast at gmail.com. And the reason why it's Polishing Turds Podcast is because some asshole already has polishingturds at gmail.com. Can you believe that, Cal? He actually polishes turds. Thank you, everybody. Good night. It was a bone of contention. Oh, sorry. That's, <laughs> that's too bad.